Thank you, Troy and Sharon and your family for singing this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, and we'll read a little bit about what some people hoped would be the greatest April Fool's joke ever. Today is April 1st, April Fool's Day. The exact origin of April Fool's Day is unknown. I did some research, and nobody really knows. There's some speculation as to where it started. The one that I thought was most interesting was one speculation that is it's tied to the vernal equinox, or the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere, when people are fooled with changing unpredictable weather. I thought it was ironic that I came across that today, April 1st, and it's zero degrees, when we were teased with spring the last few weeks, and then we get hit with another week of winter. People have gone to great lengths to create April Fool's uh, schemes or hoaxes. In 1957, BBC reported that Swiss farmers were expecting a record spaghetti crop, and they showed footage of people harvesting noodles from trees and people believed it. In 1985, Sports Illustrated tricked many of its readers when it made up an article about a rookie pitcher named Sid Fitch, Finch who could throw a fastball 168 miles an hour. In 1996, Taco Bell, the fast food restaurant chain, duped the people when it announced it had agreed to purchase Philadelphia's Liberty Bell and intended to name it Taco Liberty Bell. In 1998, after Burger King advertised a left-handed Whopper, scores of clueless customers requested the fake sandwich. We are gullible people. Ever since the first Easter morning, there have been people who have tried and tried and tried to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax. Matthew 27, I'll begin reading at verse 62. Matthew 27:62. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. The chief priests and the Pharisees here were so sure or so concerned or worried that the disciples were going to make this resurrection look real. They did not believe that it was going to happen, but they thought somebody was going to make it happen. And what I think is so interesting is the more they tried to disprove it, the more they proved it. They went to great lengths to seal this this tomb effectively proving the resurrection was real. 
Even if Jesus did resurrect or come back to life, there's no human way possible he could get out of that tomb, out of a stone hole in the wall. There's no way he could get out. And they made sure of that. They underestimate, as we so often do, they underestimate the power of God. Over the centuries, people have found documents and other proofs that the resurrection was made up or that it was a lie or that it was a hoax or whatever you want to put in there, that it wasn't real. People have found things, but they're always disproved. There's never been a document that has been, or a proof that people have come up with that has verified that the resurrection was false. There are people who believe the whole account of the resurrection was fabricated to start a religion. They got it partly right. The resurrection did start Christianity. Some people think the whole account of the resurrection was made up to control the masses of ignorant people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I believe this morning the most important thing that you can know as a Christian is that the resurrection of Jesus is real. And we all believe that. If I would ask you to raise your hand, you would all raise your hand. But how well can you defend it? If someone would ask you, how do you know that the resurrection is real? How well can you defend and say, this is how I know that it's real? We sang this morning, I, I know he lives because he lives within my heart. And that's nice. That's, that's fine. But, but can you, that's not going to work for somebody that's truly seeking proofs that the resurrection is real. I think we fall short sometimes in knowing how to explain it. Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ matter? These are some things that I've been thinking about the last few weeks. Why does it matter? Is it just a dusty piece of history that we're aware of and we believe in blind faith because that's what Christians do? Is it relevant? Does it have an impact in your life? Is it relevant to where you are? Does it matter? Or could you live a Christian life without the resurrection? Think, think in your own heart about that. Could you be a Christian today? If we'd say the resurrection actually... We've been misinterpreting it here. It actually didn't happen. Could you still live a Christian life? If you can, if you think, well, if you think, well maybe I could, I think our focus is way off. We're, we're not looking at the power of what the resurrection is. Being a follower of Jesus is not a blind leap of faith. It's a real relationship with a living Savior, and we've sang about that this morning. Everything about being a Christian Everything about being a Christian hinges on the fact of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll begin reading at verse 12, 12 through 19. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. 
For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which had fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. Do you understand what he's saying here? Paul is saying that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you're wasting your time. You may as well forget being a Christian now. There's no point if Christ did not rise from the dead. Living a life, the Christian life is about submission and self-denial. We're submitting to the Lordship of Christ and self-denial. If, if we're living that life of submission and self-denial without the resurrection, we are, it says in verse 19, of all men most miserable. It would be. It would be miserable. On a human level, self-denial and submission isn't fun. It's not good. But when we come to it through the eyes of the resurrection, submitting to the Lordship of Christ and self-denial, we can have joy and peace and contentment. And that's what the difference the resurrection brings. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Then verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. That is the key. Today, we're recognizing that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That makes all the difference. This morning, I'd like to look at several evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, and then settle in our hearts why it's so important. So there's sort of two parts to this. The first one is looking at proofs that we can know the resurrection is real. And then I'd like to look at why, why it matters, why we need the resurrection if we're going to live the Christian life. How would you prove to someone this morning that the resurrection is real. That it's not just something we take blindly by faith because I'm a Christian, I believe in the resurrection. How would you prove to someone that it's real? These evidences are just a few of them that I'm going to share with you this morning. Don't just come from the Bible. They come from other historical writings. The first one is probably the most simple and it's the most obvious and it's proven not only in Scripture but it's a historical fact. The tomb was empty. The tomb that Jesus was laid in was an empty tomb. And we looked at this a little bit this morning already. In their attempt to disprove this, that there was a resurrection, their attempt to disprove it, the chief priests and the Pharisees only helped to prove it. If this tomb was as secure as it could be, and I believe it was, Pilate said, go and make it as sure as you can. I think they, they used a belt and suspenders to make this thing secure. They did everything they could do. They effectively made, humanly, made the resurrection impossible. There's no way anybody could get out of that tomb. It says, uh, Matthew says it was a new tomb. There were no other bodies in there to be confused with the body of Jesus. There was one body put in there. Matthew tells us it was a tomb cut out of solid rock. 
There's no way in from the back or the side. There's one entrance in solid rock. There's no sneaking out the back door. A large stone was rolled over the entrance. A man who was crucified and tortured the way Christ was. There's no way he could get up, sneakily move that stone away, and sneak out without anybody seeing. Couldn't have happened. A Roman seal was put over this tomb. If that seal was broken, it was punishable with death. It was not something you messed with. A guard, probably Roman soldiers, were placed in front of this tomb, the entrance of this tomb. You're not getting by that way to steal the body. Paul Althaus, a German theologian, writes, The resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or even for a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. The tomb was, is, was, is empty. Another proof of the resurrection is found if you're still in 1 Corinthians, verse 15. I'm sorry, verse, chapter 15, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. So the empty tomb is proof. People saw him. They walked with Jesus. They touched him. They ate with him. They listened to him. He was there with them after he resurrected. They saw him die. They saw him placed in the tomb. And then they, they were with him afterwards. And that isn't just in the Bible. That, there is historical proof of this. People say, well, it's... It's a hallucination. It's something they wanted to happen and they hallucinated. Verse 6, 500 people at once. It's, it's agreed. That couldn't have been a hallucination. They saw Jesus. They walked with him. The resurrection was not figurative, simply figurative or spiritual. It was a physical, bodily resurrection. Jesus came and he offered his body to people to touch. He said to Thomas, go ahead, touch, touch the scars that I have. That you can know this was real. This is, I am real, I am alive. A third proof would be the transformed lives of the disciples. It cannot be argued that something dramatic happened to transform the 11 disciples from 11 men who were scared out of their wits in the garden. They ran away. To transform them that quickly into bold evangelists, something dramatic had to happen. These men, the disciples and others, were then willing to suffer persecution, mocking, torture, cruel deaths in order to proclaim this resurrection. People will die 
for a lie that they believe to be true. But people won't die for a lie they're making up. They knew this was real. They knew Jesus had arisen. They saw him, they touched him, they had talked to him. James, the brother of Jesus, in John 7, describes him as an unbelieving skeptic. That he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But he went on to become a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. Paul was not one of the twelve, but he did see Jesus. And that is another example of a transformed life. These disciples were willing to die cruel suffering and torture for the truth that they knew. Another proof, and you've maybe heard these before, but another proof is that the first witnesses was the testimony of women. In a culture where women were considered second-class citizens and their word was not taken very seriously, if this was something that was made up, why would the gospel writers make the first witnesses women? This would only discredit their, their story. they were inventing a story, the last person they would want, the last people they would want to be the first witnesses of something this great would be women. It would make their account far less believable. A fifth proof is the birth of the Christian church. Again, it can't be denied that something dramatic and something supernatural happened that caused the Christian faith to explode like it did. Within a few centuries, Christianity was the dominant religion throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire. And this all happened without the help of email or social media or the transportation that we have today. They didn't have that stuff. How could it spread that quickly without the help of modern technology? Only something as persuasive as the resurrection could account for this transformation. These are only a few of the proven things that we can prove that the resurrection is real. But how do you evaluate this evidence in your life? What do you do with this? And I just skimmed the surface of what these in my studying of what these proofs are. There's a lot more to them. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We all do. I know you all do. We've been taught it from little on up, and that, I think, is why we have trouble defending it. Or why we have trouble understanding the significance of it. As a child, you're told Jesus rose from the dead, and we believe it. We also believe the entire Christian faith revolves around the resurrection. But why? Why is that? Why does it matter so much? Why is the resurrection so important? Why can you not be a good Christian and serve God without the resurrection? Why can't we just appreciate the good teaching of Jesus and live according to that? Why can't we? Why do we have to have the resurrection? I'd like to look at several 
reasons why the resurrection is the hinge on which Christianity turns. The first thing is this. The resurrection of Jesus proves that the sacrifice of His only begotten Son was sufficient to atone for our sins. Up until this point, there had been billions of sacrifices. And they all stayed dead. There was nothing good enough for God that He said, that is sufficient. God established in the Garden of Eden that when there is sin, there has to be death. That is a law of God. For sin, there's death. Throughout the entire Old Testament, there's blood and death to atone for the sins of the people, for the sins of man. Over and over, the best of animals were sacrificed. Perfect and pure animals were offered to appease an angry God. God needed a perfect sacrifice to atone, to bring us back into fellowship with him. He needed a perfect sacrifice to atone for that once for all. You've heard the phrase once and for all. Mothers, maybe you say this to your children. I'm going to tell you this once and for all. That's what what God did when he sent his son. He said, I'm sending this once and for all. This is the last time we're going to need a sacrifice. A sacrifice that wouldn't only cover these sins, but they would wipe them away. Forgiveness is available for every single person, for every single sin. A sacrifice that if we accept it, it can take our filthy, dirty hearts and make us perfectly pure before God. A sacrifice that would open the gates of heaven, wide open, that we can come As individuals, we can come boldly before the throne of God. We can come as individuals, personally, to God. We no longer have to go through a priest. We can go directly to God. That perfect sacrifice was God's only and His perfect Son, Jesus Christ. 100% man, 100% God. As I was meditating on that, I was thinking of this. Of the billions and billions of sacrifices offered up until that point, there wasn't one good enough. Of the billions of people, there's seven and a half billion people living in the world right now. That's not counting all the ones that have lived up till this point. Of the billions of people that have lived, there is not one that would even come close to being good enough to be this, this one and only sacrifice. And in our society today, we live in a way where if this doesn't work, we can always resort to this. We can do this. If this doesn't work, we can do this. If the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't work, what are you going to do? There is nothing you can do. There is no other options. There's one way. So what if, what if Jesus would have said, like you and I would, this is just too hard. I am not going to go through with this. It's not worth it. I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a few people that are going to follow me and the rest are going to turn their backs on me. 
what if he would have said that? Or what if he would have called 10,000 angels? He could have done that. What if he would have done that? Our one and only chance to be redeemed and to be saved would be gone. There, there would be nothing, no hope forever. One man is the only hope. What if Jesus had not done that? If that doesn't make you thankful this morning, nothing will. He did for us what only he could do. His sacrifice was sufficient. The second thing is it proves that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus made a lot of bold claims throughout his life. He claimed to be the Son of God. He said, I am going to die and I am going to rise again. And that was good. But what if he hadn't risen again? Why would we need to believe anything else he said? If he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again, and he died and never rose again, what kind of credibility would that give to everything else he taught? There have been men throughout history who have made some pretty wild claims about themselves. There's a man, Jonas Bendixson, wrote a book entitled The Last Testament, and it is a book documenting the lives of seven men who I think are alive today who all claim to be Jesus Christ. They claim to have, this is the second coming of Jesus, and they claim to be Jesus. And he, he has no religious beliefs at all. So he claims he goes at this in an unbiased way. And he went and he has pictures of them and interviews them and is, it's all about them, these seven men. If Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, he could just be another name in the book. There would be no, no different than these. But because he did what he said he was going to do, this impossible task of rising from the dead, we can know, we can believe that everything else he said was real as well. Jesus came to the earth to be the Savior who takes away the sin of the world. Because of this, he knows he's able to do what he claims. Only the creator of life can bring it back after death. He removed the sting of death and gained victory over the grave. Did you ever think of what that means? Removing the sting of death and gaining victory over the grave. Before the resurrection of Jesus, death had an iron grip on mankind. That was it. Hebrews 11 says all these, he, he lists the heroes of faith in there. It says these all died in faith, having not received the promise. They, they had faith there was something coming. But death was the end. Death had an, a grip on mankind. It says these all died in faith. Not having received the promise that you and I all have. They knew it was coming, but they didn't have it. They had faith it was coming. When Jesus rose from the dead, he broke that iron grip of death and paved the way for the rest of us. It says he became the first fruits of them that slept. The Old Testament looked forward in faith to what would happen. We look back with confidence as to what will happen. 
For the Christian, death is still final. There's a finality to death. When somebody dies, you aren't going to see them again here on this earth. That's it. It's final. The times that you shared with that person here on earth are over. And that's what that's part of the tragedy that we or we feel that the tragedy of death, the finality of it. But it isn't final. It isn't. If you are living for Christ, it isn't final. Jesus took away that sting. There is no no more sting. Because we know there's something more coming. It's not the end. The third reason the resurrection is so important is if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no mediator between God and man. Turn with me to Psalm 24. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no mediator between God and man. Between the imperfect humanity and a sovereign God. No one to intercede for us. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He's a mediator or an intercessor for us that was tempted, it says, in every way like we are. He was 100% man and he knows what we go through. He knows the temptations we face. He knows our trials. He, we can't think, well, he's up there at the right hand of God. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. He does. If we don't understand what he went through, I think, is more what it is. He understands what we, what we go through in life. Charles Spurgeon said, A ladder that reaches all the way to the, that reaches only to the top is no good. A ladder that reaches only to the bottom is no good. You need a ladder that reaches from the bottom all the way to the top. And that's what Jesus Christ is as a mediator for us. That ladder was broken. When man sinned, that ladder now reached from the ground up into midair somewhere. Our perfect union between man and God was broken. So in other words, we need, mankind needed a perfect Savior who understands the perfect way, the perfect plan, the thoughts, and the will of Almighty God, who understands everything about God, but can also understand the shortcomings of fallen man, which is us. And Jesus understands our shortcomings because he is, he once is man, 100%. But he's 100% God as well. Savior who had only died cannot do this. A dead Savior isn't that ladder that goes the whole way. I came across this in my studying on Friday. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, that ladder that was broken off reached from earth to the gates of heaven. And for the first time in history, man walked up to the gates of heaven and he cried out in Psalm 24 verse 7 if man 
for the first time in eternity, walked up to the gates of heaven and he said, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up the everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. For the first time ever. And now picture what's happening. Jesus is standing outside the gates and he's saying, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up. And I just imagine all of heaven goes silent. They've never heard this before. This has never happened. That a man has been able to come to the gates of heaven. And somebody then says, Who is this King of Glory? And Jesus, he answers, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, the everlasting doors, and the King of Glory shall come in. Can you picture that? And then I see these gates of heaven opening. Jesus walking in triumphantly because he's back home. And he walks in and he walks right up to the throne of God the Father and he sits down at the right hand and he says to God, says, it's finished. I've done what you've asked me to do. And I'm a father and I have pride in my son, but I just picture God the Father looking down at his son and nodding. And in that nod is more pride than any father here will ever understand because of what his son has done. The only person possible to do the job he was given and he did it. That ladder now extends from earth all the way up to the gates of heaven and the first man ever to go up. The first fruits of them this flesh. Jesus reaches the gates of heaven and open up. I'm home. And he goes in. Acts 2.36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom he crucified both Lord and Christ. Christ means King. Lord and Christ. Jesus is alive and well this morning and he is at the right hand of God pleading our case before God when we accept his forgiveness. He becomes that consuming addiction in your heart and in your life. Jesus looks at you and he views you as perfect. You are perfect and righteous before God and Satan, that accuser, comes and he's, he's throwing things back at you. And Jesus, our intercessor, our mediator, looks at the Father and says, That's not true. I've taken care of that for him, and he is one of mine. That's what he does for you. That is what a mediator and an intercessor does for us. To me, that is why the resurrection is so important. In closing, Philippians 3. Verse 9 says, And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteous, which is of God, which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means that I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And this is where we all need to be. We want to know God, to be associated with him, to understand the power and the significance of the resurrection, to be willing to be conformed unto his suffering. To learn to endure the shame of following and being associated with Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. 
Biden is shaming the ridicule that he receives for being different than society, or that you might receive for being different than society, the scorn that Jesus receives because his actions condemn the world. That scorn and that ridicule means nothing to him. It doesn't matter. That's what despising is saying. Let's suppose it's this verse in Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the things, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be weary and faint in the mind. If you're able to 